0: You are listening to the Religica Theolab podcast in the Center for Ecumenical and Interreligious Engagement at Seattle University.
1: Today, on our Religica podcast,
0: Steve Wilhelm interviews Karma Lekshe Tsomo, who is professor of Buddhist studies at the University of San Diego, where she teaches world religions. Today,
1: Lekshe speaks about the roles of Buddhist women so essential to the world. Take a listen. Years ago, I went off to Asia looking for Buddhist teachings and a monastery for women, and I didn't find one. Eventually, in 1972, I found my way to Dharamsala, where His Holiness the Dalai Lama had created classes for Western people to study Buddhism. So that was really wonderful. And I stayed there altogether, studied about 15 years. You at the library? First at the library, and then at the Institute of Buddhist Dialectics. So At that time, I also noticed that Himalayan women, Tibetan women, didn't have the same opportunities to study that we foreigners did, and certainly nothing compared to what the monks had. And maybe it was just neglect that somehow they overlooked the nuns. But in Tibet also, there were not monastic universities equivalent to those available to monks. So... We started encouraging the nuns to go to the classes at the library, which were in Tibetan and English both, but they lacked confidence. And I discovered that most of them were illiterate. So I started to find a teacher who taught a group of eight to begin with, eight or 11, I think, to read. And at first I had to talk them into it. They thought that they were not capable of learning to read. And they'd say, you Western nuns, you go and learn to read. But we'll just say, Omani Mani pemeho. And
0: these were nuns? Nuns. These women? Okay.
1: Men mostly from Tibet. Yeah. They never had a chance for any type of education. So it took me quite some time to talk them into learning to read. And I said, you know, if you learn to read, you'll be able to understand His Holiness's teachings better. And they thought, oh, okay. That's what did it. Mm-hmm. They decided they would like to learn to read. And within two months, all of them had learned to read. And little by little, Himalayan nuns started coming and asking if they could learn Tibetan grammar, and then could they learn Tibetan philosophy, and could they learn English. And before we knew it, we had a full-time study program. So at that time, there was nothing available for nuns anywhere. This was the first. And we gathered in some old cow sheds that Lama Zopa had turned over the lease to me, and we just huddled in those... (laughs) Cowsheds, <laughs> which fell down during an earthquake, and you know, no amenities, no water, no running water, no facilities. But we were all happy to be studying Dharma. So that's how it started.
0: So, and are you, what's your role now as Sakadita?
1: I'm um, something like a parliamentarian. I do the newsletter and I do the administrative work behind the scenes, I help with the publications. And uh, with memberships, and also with our national branches and local chapters.
0: You're a founder, are you? A, are
1: you a... I was a founder, I was the president for eight years.
0: Okay, you're
1: not I was a secretary for four, okay. years, or maybe eight years. Right. I, yeah. So, but now I like, we want to pass on these positions to the younger generation. And that's important, too, because we want to keep going. We want this movement to continue. In a way, we could say that we've accomplished our goals. All of our goals from the first conference, we looked, you know, 20 years later, oh, done. We've accomplished all that. We've established an international network of Buddhist women around the world. We've implemented ordination and training programs and education programs and all of that. So we have reformulated our goals and selected new goals and realized that we wanted to support things like the millennial goals and sorts of these sorts of action programs and establish links with other NGOs around the world and so forth.
0: So it sounds like, I mean, and in terms of, you know, these are contentious times and there's, how do I say, difficult autocratic males out there and whatever, politically, Mm -hmm. uh, without getting into them compared to 30 years ago when you first started in terms of your sort of hopes and dreams probably things you never thought you could really actually do and they yes. happened we, we've that?
1: we've accomplished far more than our we ever dreamed when we began we were had very modest goals besides you know world peace uh, which we're still working on but over time we saw that It was within our power to change a great deal, especially changing people's attitudes about what women are capable of accomplishing. So helping women to step up and take our place at the table. And that means a lot of encouragement for women themselves to take those roles, because we've been, my generation, we were conditioned to stay in the background and Serve in supportive ways. And that's still sort of the norm in many Buddhist countries. But I think that going forward, each country is different. Each Buddhist country has its own culture, its own language, its own goals, its own priorities. Like for many Buddhist women, the priority is water. I mean, we're seeing villages in the Himalayas where they have no water to drink. And who holds the water? It's the women. Basic things like education and literacy are still priorities for many Buddhist women. How can they do business? Buddhist women are free to do business, but how can they do business without getting cheated if they cannot read and write? Mm -hmm. So that's a priority. Whereas Buddhist women in the United States may have as a priority to work against sexual harassment, gender issues, sexual orientation and gender justice might be one of their priorities. And so it's really individual. We allow, we want to give space for Buddhist women in different countries and cultures to establish their own goals. And that's why we've encouraged the establishment of national branches and local chapters where women can work on the issues that are of prime importance for them.
0: Yeah, that's amazing. Yes. That's so heartening, I'd say. I think so. Let me stop you here and back up for a second. Back up 2,600 years ago maybe you can clarify something for listeners, because my small understanding, and correct me if I'm wrong, that the Buddha did say that men and women could equally be awakened. But on the other hand, when the whole monastic question came up, which he resisted, and then there was a bunch of extra Vinaya rules that women had to go by that made him essentially secondary to the youngest monk. So correct me if I'm wrong, could you help readers understand what that has meant here in 2018? And what I like, say, for instance, what is the mean right. that addresses
1: okay well you remember that the buddha achieved perfect awakening under the bodhi tree in bodhgaya and soon thereafter in Sarnath he gave the first teaching and his first five disciples were his former companions five young aristocrats who'd been seeking on the path with him and sort of abandoned him when he gave up fasting and Extreme asceticism. But then, when they saw that he'd obviously realized something important, they became his first five disciples. And the Buddha said, Come here, and they magically became transformed into monks. So, about five or six years later, the Buddha's own stepmother, who was his auntie, Mahapajapati, requested to join the order. And at first, According to the texts, he hesitated to admit women into the Sangha. At that time, the Sangha, the monastic community, were homeless wanderers. And to sleep under trees and to live on alms was difficult, not only for a queen such as Mahapajapati, but for any woman to sleep in the forest even now. It's extremely risky. And so, The latest research, and there's a German monk named Venerable Annalaya who has been researching this, and he's more and more convinced that, in fact, the Buddhist hesitation was out of a wish to protect women from danger, from harm, from sexual assault. So the group that Mahapajapati organized, after requesting a couple of times and he hesitated, she organized this march across northern India, 500 women. They walked all the way to Vaishali, this village where the Buddha was giving teachings, and arrived all disheveled and tired and dirty from the rain, the elements and so forth, to ask another one more time. And at that time, the Buddha's cousin, who was his attendant, interceded on their behalf and asked the Buddha, would he consider admitting women since Mahapajapati had nurtured him since he was of Baby, and had been shown so much kindness to him, and then he asked, "Is it true that women have the capability to achieve liberation?" And the Buddha affirmed that it was. And then Venerable Ananda said, "Well, wouldn't it be well if women were allowed to join the order, the Sangha?" And the Buddha agreed. So that's the story, mm-hmm. and. These are the legends. We have no historical evidence, but these are the legends that have been passed on and on. Now, the caveat was that the Buddha is said to have required Mahapajapati to accept eight special rules. And these eight special rules unquestionably subordinate the order of nuns to the order of monks. And there's been a lot of speculation on why this might be he said that a nun, even if she had been ordained for a hundred years, should bow, should rise to greet and bow to a monk, even one who had been ordained that day. Now, he did not require fully ordained nuns to bow to novices. That's often misunderstood. But even so, it raises questions about gender equity and what his reasoning might have been, if indeed he ever said this at all. One reason people have put out there is that it would have been so countercultural to see monks bow to nuns. It was just, the culture at that time was very patriarchal. Women were basically property. They were kept in the home. They had no freedom. What he was doing, in fact, in allowing women to go forth and follow the spiritual path to virtually, I mean, abandon their husbands and children and seek liberation was radical enough in itself and struck at the fiber of Indian society. And so some believe that that was one reason that he hesitated in the beginning and also made it clear that women would accept the authority of the Bhikshu order, the yeah. order of fully ordained monks.
0: And not to get too down in the weeds, I apologize, but so there's this one story where the Buddha told Ananda that he could let go of the minor rules and Ananda forgot to ask him which they were. Mm-hmm. I've always wondered if that might have been it, those rules that referred to nuns.
1: Well, it could be. Yeah. Because, you know, there are rules that are moral precepts, not the kill, and steal. And then you have rules that are to maintain communal harmony. Yeah. You know, here, I mean, the Buddha was quite radical in allowing young men and young women of all different castes and economic ethnic backgrounds to join. And we know even today, that's not such an easy thing to accomplish. And so, in fact, those rules for harmonious living were one thing. And then you have a hundred training rules, you know, not to eat with your mouth open and things like that, which really are, are rather small. And yet they're important for maintaining decorum in the face of the lay community. The lay community is giving these people lunch. Therefore, It's expected that they will behave in a certain polite fashion. So we have those rules as well.
0: So you bring it up to 2018. And so on the one hand, some of what he did was radical for its time. And then he sort of broke a whole lot of structures of hierarchy. And then when you bring it up to 2018, and now it seems like some of the places where he compromised seem like they're no longer or actually an impediment rather than a breaking structures. So that's sort of what mm-hmm. you have been working with is, is equality.
1: Well, I would say that the Buddhist teachings are liberating for women spiritually and, as we've seen, as socially as well. But then after the Buddha's passing, a lot of patriarchal sort of customs and habits reasserted themselves. Yes. And what can we do about that? We still see that in the world today, even in our own societies. And it's a, it's a difficult one to change people's attitudes the Buddhist teachings were also liberating for women socially in that they allowed women the freedom to choose monastic life rather than married life, marriage and childbearing. And that was also a really radical move. And this tradition of ordination of allowing women to be ordained and to live the spiritual life, if they wished, has been very important in all Buddhist societies. I think except for Russia, the Buddhist republics of Russia, there have been nuns in most Buddhist societies. Mongolia, too, we're not completely sure about. But that meant that women had an option They could opt out of family life, household life, and go to a monastery and live with other women and pursue the spiritual path. And often, that's where they got an education. So this uh, order, the Bhikkhuni order, extended up to about the 11th century in India. And fortunately, about 300 years before Christ, also was transmitted to Sri Lanka, about 429 years after. It also went to China, where it was preserved and transmitted to Korea, Taiwan, and Vietnam. So in these countries, women have the option to be fully ordained. Because the order died out in India and Sri Lanka and Nepal, we're not sure whether it ever made it to Burma and Thailand. But the situation now is that we're talking about reviving something that had died out. And we're saying that, well, we can just... Revive it from China because the Sri Lankans kindly gave the order to the Chinese women, and now we can simply take it back.
0: And what do you think it means in sort of looking ahead a hundred years? Because I think we're coming into difficult times with climate change and environmental migration, and it's if it's gnarly now, I think it's going to get worse. What do you think this? I mean, it seems like there's a certain grace, a certain compassion embedded in some of what you're talking about. What do you think it'll how will it help
1: well i one thing is conflict resolution skills that the buddhists have many tools and resources for learning to create harmonious societies peace of in one's own mind yeah. and peace in human relationships so it's going to be very important as people begin to compete for resources such as water land trees and various resources and it could lead to a lot of conflict. So here I think the Buddhists have a lot to offer the world, and we need to become skilled in this. And this is why we make this a priority in our programs, to help women become peacemakers and trainers of trainers in these peacemaking skills. That's one thing for sure. We can help with educating people about consumerism, Greed, hatred, and ignorance. Back to the three main conflicting emotions that are at the root of so many problems. Looking at the issue of self-interest, why we choose our own self-interest over the interest of our sisters and brothers. And these are pretty basic things, but looking at it from the root, because all of these problems have causes. If we try only to sort of smooth over the, the surface, it, may not solve the problem. We need to begin at the beginning to question our own self-cherishing attitudes and try to work together in harmony peacefully to resolve these questions. This is my hope and my
0: dream. You've been listening to the Religica Theo Lab podcast in the Center for Ecumenical and Interreligious Engagement at Seattle University. To learn more about the center's work and for resources to be used in local communities, visit us at seattleu.edu slash the center.